everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading In the Arena by Isabel Kuhn with permission of OMF International, and we are on Chapter 5, Frustrations. I'd never felt called to the Chinese people, although I learned to love them when I got to know them. I had felt called to the group named China Inland Mission because they followed Hudson Taylor's principles of proving God, learn to move men through God by prayer alone. When I heard J.O. Frazier speak about the Lisu tribe at the first conference in 1924, I had a longing to go to them. I fell in love with them. Mr. Frazier was secretly disappointed, I always felt, that the conference where he had poured out his heart brought only one volunteer for the Lisu, and that was a girl. He was polite, of course, but not encouraging. It was not a woman's job, and he himself, until then, had never married because he felt no woman should be asked to endure such a life. On returning to China, to his amazement and ours, Mr. Frazier was not sent back to the Lisu tribe. He never got back to them just as their missionary. D. E. Host, Hudson Taylor's successor as general director of CIM, had plans for a higher leadership. He had been watching the godliness and shrewd insight and brilliant ability of this young electrical engineer and coveted his influence for more than just one of the Chinese tribes. Mr. Fraser was at least 50 years ahead of his time in his vision of the indigenous church, and his deep prayer life and abandoned consecration appealed much to our general director. But although Mr. Fraser himself did not go back to Lisuland, my call never wavered, and yet I did not dare name it a call. It was just a great longing to go to them. At Moody Bible Institute, I had heard missionaries' challenges that drew me breathless to the edge of my seat, especially when L. L. Lakters appealed for the Indians of South America. I wished I were two people, one of whom could go to those neglected Indians. But I never wavered in the vision for the Lisu tribe. That came first. And yet, when at last I got to China and to Yunlan, the person who stood most in my way was Mr. Fraser himself. By that time, I was engaged to marry John Kuhn, but I had held off John until I knew that the mission had designated him to the tribes of Yunnan. John himself had felt drawn to the work in the far northwest, but when the mission assigned him to the southwest and to the tribes, it seemed to indicate that God himself had set his seal on our marriage. So we became officially engaged. Mr. Fraser had had to come down to Shanghai during the anti-foreign uprisings of 1927, and there he met John Kuhn and loved him. He even wrote me a letter advising me to choose John. He knew someone else was a possibility. By the time John was appointed to Yunnan, Mr. Fraser had become the superintendent of that province. A persistent language student himself and a brilliant linguist, Mr. Fraser was thrilled at John's progress in Chinese. He began, even that early, to plan that John would someday be his assistant superintendent. There was the assignment to the tribes, but all tribal workers had to study Chinese first. Mr. Fraser saw to it that John had ample opportunity to get Chinese thoroughly. By the time I'd finished the prescribed Chinese language examinations and normally would have been sent to the tribes, Mr. Fraser delayed us, saying Isabel's not strong enough physically to endure such a hard life. Quite possibly my difficulties in adjusting to the squalor of peasant life, many other young workers simply took those hardships with joy, was at the back of his thinking. But I honestly think it was more than he did not want to lose John to any of his expertise in Chinese. To learn the Lisu language, John would necessarily get a bit rusty in the previous language learned. John himself was happy with either destination. He was willing to go to the Lisu, and he made one trip into the upper Salween Canyon, which thrilled him. 
but he also enjoyed working with the Chinese. It was only John's wife who kept timidly bringing up this matter of the Lisu. Ten years had passed. It was 1924 when I first felt called to the Lisu, and now 1933 had dawned and we were still in Chinese work. The normal time for our furlough was approaching. John had been out seven years and I five years. Seven was the normal term. Had I been called to the Lisu, or had it just been a sentimental attraction? Desperately, I took it to the Lord, blessed refuge for all troubles. One could tell him things one would be ashamed to tell others. I guess, Lord, I whispered mournfully, I will just have to conclude that I mistook your guidance, and it was not a call after all. Another application to Mr. Fraser had just brought the answer. Wait until after your furlough. We will see then. It was that spring that I had felt so discouraged with my own ministry. We had opened the beautiful little plain of Yangping to the gospel. It was plainly Muslim in population had not been fruitful. I had worked faithfully. There was not a hamlet or a village on that whole plain where I had not personally gone, driven off their various dogs, pushed my way into their dirty courtyards, and presented my message. The women were kind, and everyone was nice to me, but only a mere handful of people accepted Christ. And most of those were very poor, illiterate women, too weak to call a church. It was at Yang Ping that I expressed my willingness to be put on the shelf, willing not to be the one he used, if only I might see him work. As Li Su work seemed impossible before furlough, we mentally accepted the fact. We were expecting a little playmate for our two-year-old Catherine. It was then, when hope was dead, the Lord wrought so wonderfully. But it appeared as a catastrophe at first glance. In August 1933, John went out on a long trip to discover what the tribes inhabited an area we called the Triangle. Catherine and I, with three young lady workers, were left behind in Yangping, apparently quite safe from danger. Then one day, without warning, the Yangping River flooded. It rose so silently that we were not aware of what was happening until it almost reached the level of our downstairs room. Then began a scramble to move people who lived there to the upstairs. I was called upon to help lift one of Miss Embury's trunks to a place of safety, and humanly speaking, that did it. I suffered a miscarriage. It was impossible to contact John. There was no post office in the mountain villages where he was, so it was not until he returned that he learned there was no baby to look forward to. I felt the loss more keenly than he, perhaps. As he returned to comfort me, he said, God must have some purpose in this, dear. We will just ask him what it is. Within 24 hours, a letter from Mr. Fraser was in our hands. I want your prayers for a perplexing problem, he wrote. Then he told us of the two Lisu churches in the upper Salween Canyon, which had come into being through the sacrificial pioneer of four Lisu evangelists. That trailblazing had cost the life of one of the four. Now those two little churches are flourishing, but they are six days' journey apart, and there's only one missionary couple to care for the two. Mr. Fraser had written that Layla and Alan Cook had separated. Alan to care for the Luday Church and Layla left in charge of the Oak Flat Church. But I cannot allow this to go on, wrote his perplexed superintendent. Layla Cook is very brave to stay alone in that isolated rough place, but I cannot allow husband and wife to continue in separation. Yet I have no one else to send. John and I looked at one another. The meaning of the Lord was now clear to us. With a newborn infant, it would have been well nigh impossible for us to begin such a rough life. But our two-year-old would have a wonderful time on those wooded slopes with someone to watch her. John and I knew now why the baby had been taken from us. 
We wrote to Mr. Fraser immediately and told him of my accident and of my firm belief that it was the Lord's guiding us to go to the upper Selween. Our dear superintendent was too much of a man of God not to realize the hand of the Lord, but his common sense still held to it that my health could not stand the Sulin. Go in for a trip, he wrote. That will relieve Mrs. Cook's present stress over this opium persecution. John must interview the official and claim gently the religious freedom for this land. Isabel can judge from this trip whether she can stand it. And as Layla Cook has not seen another white face for months, she will no doubt be overjoyed to have Isabel's company. This was the reason for our trip into the Upper Salween in March 1934, when Mark and other Christian Lee Sioux friends from Gumu fought their way over the snowy mountains and arrived the day after we did. I was thrilled with the Lee Sioux land by the Lord's work in salvation and by his work in creation. The Cooks lived in a flimsy bamboo lisu shanty, but Alan Cook had worked and prepared a flourishing garden. Beets and carrots, tomatoes, and such good food grew in abundance. Layla Cook had brought an iron cook-in stove and a little heater, so though life was primitive in style, it was cozy. At that time, they were living in the Pine Mountain Village and had a site on the mountainside to themselves. The squalor and insects of poverty and primitive living were as bad or worse than among the Chinese farmers. But to me, it was much easier to endure for two reasons. Beauty and privacy were obtainable. In the Chinese peasant villages, you were shut up to ugly drabness. If you tried to leave the village, you found yourself in their flat rice field, where, of course, you could not sit down and were very conspicuous. In Le Land, the villages were also smelly and ugly. But you could stand anywhere and lift up your eyes to the most magnificent alpine panorama on which to feast your soul. And for privacy, there was those great mountain slopes dotted with trees, beautiful wildflowers, and picturesque rocks. In ten minutes, you could be quite alone, out of sight and surrounded by breathtaking beauty. On rainy days, there was the beauty of the cloud-wreathed peaks. Living conditions in tribe lands were much more difficult than on the Chinese plain. There were no stores which to buy food or furniture. The Lisu did not use furniture. A raised plank for a bed, yes. Rough cut boards or baskets to store grain, yes. That was about all. When we moved to the Oak Flat District, very few Lisu used tables. They ate off a board placed on an unwashed floor, which was also the roof of the cattle pen built beneath the hut. After seeing our table, many of them began to make tables for themselves, but many were the meals which I ate off the floor before they were awakened to the possible luxury of something better. I remember one occasion we were thus eating. The family cat made dashes for our meat dish. Being on our level on the floor, she was very successful. But Lucius, a Lisi brother who was with us, put an end to her plundering. He caught her, held her tail down with his heel a good yard off, and placidly went on eating. The cat yelled frantically, but no more meal was lost. And so it was that we wrote Mr. Fraser again, quite confident that I could stand it and would love it. Mr. Fraser replied gratefully that we might move into Le Soulin until our furlough. John was in his tenth year and I was in my eighth when we finally left for America. How thrilled we were. Frustrations last for a time, but the will of the Lord reigns in the end, I told myself jubilantly. It was exactly ten years since I had first felt the call to the Le Soulin work. Ten years of waiting and frustration. Why? most probably because I myself had not been ready before. I needed the hard years of plotting, which resulted in little fruit, to make me so hungry for saved souls that the physical hardship would not matter. In other words, 
The Lord had to train me to appreciate what he was doing among that barefooted mountain tribe before he dared let me share in the work. I always said that the Lesu work was physically hardship, but spiritually luxury. The physical hardship was obvious to anyone. It was spiritual luxury I would not have recognized if I had not gone into the Lesu work without those barren years among the Chinese peasants. There had been some souls saved among the Chinese, but they were illiterate. Old women could never learn to read their Bibles, and how is one to grow spiritually without feeding on the Word? In those early years, I did not know about the Chinese phonetics. In Le Sulin, they were literate too, but Fraser's script was so simple and easy that a bright lad could learn to read in one month. Then you can begin to open the scriptures to that one. This I had to learn to appreciate. The Holy Spirit blowing like a strong wind across the mountains, new converts springing up in this little village and in that one, that is a luxury. Others had to pay the painful price of pioneering. We were merely walking into the blessing. And the Lesu with a little training could sing in parts. Oh, how my soul had been galled by the monotone singing of the Chinese peasant. This glorious love of music and a keen aptitude, for it was a luxury, and so on. Those ten long years of waiting and frustration had been needed to open my eyes to the privileges of being allowed to share in the Lisu work. If I had gone into the work as soon as my Chinese language examines were passed, I would have taken the tide of blessing for granted. The young converts, eager to be taught as the usual thing, and I might have chafed at the physical hardships and the monotonous food, the difficulty of getting help and getting supplies and so on. My spiritual eyesight needed to be clarified. After permission was given to move, we were frustrated again. John took sick, amoebic dysentery first, and then a hernia operation. Why, oh why? It must be the devil. My irritated flesh wanted to blame someone, and the devil is always a handy object. Medical attention was needed, and the new worker just arrived at Tali was a doctor, Dr. Stuart Haverson. So to Tali we repaired. Here we met this new missionary who had come from a cultured, well-to-do home, yet who accepted the physical hardships not just with patience but with zest. Dr. Haversham simply plunged into life among the peasants with joy and abandonment. He was a living rebuke, though unconscious of it, to my shrinking horror of vermin, dirt, and bad smells. And the Lord mightily blessed. As John was sick in bed and Dr. Haversham had not yet learned Chinese, I had to go with him on medical calls to act as an interpreter. In a few weeks, I saw many Chinese saved, as many in four weeks as I had the whole previous year. It was not a Muslim community like Yangping, Still, God taught me a lesson. We're going to stop right here in this chapter, and, and next time we'll find out what the lesson she learned. I love you. I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.